0: And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter five, 1 Timothy chapter five. It's found on page 1179 of the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. 1 Timothy chapter five, where we'll be reading verses three through 16 in just a moment. The theme of 1 Timothy is found I think everyone universally agrees on this. It's found in chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. In those verses, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms why he wrote this letter. He writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul does not hesitate to call the church the house or the household of God. Of course, by saying this, Paul is not saying that God lives inside our church building. Paul is not a pagan. As a faithful Jew, he would echo the sentiments and song of Solomon, who said that the whole universe could not contain God, let alone a temple made by human hands. God cannot enclose himself inside one of his creations, even one as big as our universe. So what does he mean when at the center of this letter, he called the church the household of God? I think Paul intended to impress upon Timothy and the congregation that despite their differences, they really were a family. They had one father who adopted them. They shared in one spirit who designed them and gifted them for usefulness in this house. And maybe more than anything else, I think Paul wanted them to realize how sacred their life together really was that the decisions they made together, the way they treated each other, really mattered. The Church of Jesus is not just another organization. It is the place where God himself lives by the Spirit. This is why Paul can tell us in one passage that we are individually temples of the living God, and then in another passage, say that we become a single temple when we're all joined together. The Spirit of God inhabits us personally, but then unites us like spirit-filled bricks to create a single universal temple, something greater even than the sum of the parts. With such a rich and transcendent theology of the church, it's no surprise, is it? that Paul was deeply concerned about our life together. Paul's central concern in this whole letter, as he put it himself, is how we behave in the household of God. In chapter 1, he urged Timothy to use his apostolic authority to silence false teachers in the house of God. History is so clear. No church No church will last unless there is a militant and continuous intolerance for false teaching. Chapter one. In chapter two, Paul urged Timothy to change the worship practices of the church. How we pray, what we pray for, how the service is structured, what men and women do in the service. This influences us. They shape, liturgy shapes, our view of God. And so liturgy matters what we do in the service. That's chapter two. Then in chapter three, Paul lays out for us the perpetual offices of the church, elders and deacons. The book of Acts tells us that Paul repeatedly appointed elders in every church he planted. And so the officers are vital to the body's health and protection. Finally, in chapter four, the section we've been in most recently several times now, and really the first two verses of chapter 5, Paul turns his gaze specifically now on Timothy as pastor and describes the kind of man Timothy is to be and what his ministry must look like. All that brings us now to chapter 5, where we are this morning. The big message has not changed. The church is the house of God, nothing less. As such... How are we to behave? Today, we'll consider the widows of the church, how they are to be honored and how they can be useful. Please stand and we'll hear together as I read it God's word. This is 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled, if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith." Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, indeed, this is your word. It is inerrant in every way. It is authoritative in every way for your people. But it is just not true and perfect. It is also sufficient to our needs And so we pray this morning that through the preaching of your word and the reading of your word, Father, you would instruct us, rebuke us, correct us, and encourage us in all the things of Christ. Father, we look now to your Holy Spirit speaking through his word to do this work, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The city of Nafplio is storybook beautiful. The little Greek town hugs the sea. I can still remember from the balcony of my room, the Mediterranean shining out beyond my balcony. It was impossibly blue, a blue that you cannot see anywhere here in America. Surrounded by all this beauty, one thing in my lovely hotel room continually caught my eye. A somber painting, a beautiful young Greek woman wrapped up all in black. Sadness filled her eyes, and like the sea, I still remember her. I can still close my eyes and see her eyes. Days later, I came to know its meaning outside one of the Greek Orthodox churches, a woman kneeled on the cobblestones wrapped in the same black. She was a widow. She lived in mourning for her husband and lived off the charity of those who come in and out of the church. My family, our missionary, the Kirklands, uh, later confirmed for me, indeed, the picture was of a young Greek widow who had probably lost her husband and was in mourning. Of course, this is something very few of us will ever see, and probably never in this country, but it does get us back, I think, into the world of this text. Widows were among the most vulnerable people in Paul's day. So then, we shouldn't be completely surprised that Paul devotes all these verses to their care in God's house. In fact, the care of widows, the care of widows has always been a sign of a devoted and righteous life. Job, as some of you probably have learned in Sunday school, Job defended his own righteousness by repeatedly citing his concern for widows. In Exodus 22, when the law was given, God promised to destroy Israel, the people of God, if they mistreated the widow and the orphan. In tribal life, these were the easiest victims, the most vulnerable. And so in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms, God describes himself as the defender or the kinsman of the widow and the orphan. In other words, he would take it upon himself to become the husband, to become the father. And then, of course, the story of Ruth, which you heard a little part of this morning. Really, it is the story of a righteous young widow, as Anna is the story of a righteous older widow. Now, Jesus fulfilled and continued this concern for widows. His birth was celebrated by the prophetess, the widow Anna, who, having no family, spent all her time at the temple praying. Jesus would later heal a widow's son as an act of charity to show that he was in line and in harmony with the Mosaic law. On another day, Jesus watched a widow give a mite, a tiny coin, into the temple coffers, He pointed her out to his disciples as the model for giving generously from the heart. The tiny coin was probably her widow's allotment, her food ration for that day. She chose instead to fast and to donate the coin. After Jesus' ascension, the church continued this mission. In the first church, the Jerusalem church, It was the care of widows that provoked the formal creation of the office of deacon. In Acts, we are told that after that office was created, many Jewish priests came to faith when they saw the church's love and concern for the needy. So the care of widows is a vital part of our family history. In this passage, Paul paints his own portrait of what he calls a true widow. In these verses, he tells us what she is and what she is not. Let's look together now and let us remember her portrait and learn from it. So first, think with me for a moment about what is not, what is not in Paul's portrait of a true widow. Paul begins verse 3 by saying, honor widows who are truly widows. And verse 9 adds, let a widow be enrolled if and then the conditions are, are given. Paul then, and this is what I want you to see, is he's not talking about all the widows of the church here. He's talking about those who need to be enrolled, William Mounts, a Greek scholar and commentator, notes that this enrollment, quote, refers to a formal relationship between the church and the widow so that she knows she will be cared for until death. Before we go any further, let me take just a moment to assure every widow and widower in this room that we pray for you and that we want to faithfully support you in your grief. If there's some way we can do that, please speak to one of our elders or deacons or pastors. That being said, our focus today is on what we might call extreme widowhood. That is those who've been widowed and have no family or support those who have been enrolled by the church. And that is, you'll see the first qualification that Timothy is to exclude from enrollment. A widow who has family needs to be cared for by that family. Look with me again at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety, godliness, to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Having elderly parents notice, Paul says, is an opportunity to show godliness the word in verse 4 is one of the great key words of this letter. If you read just about any book on First Timothy, the author will probably have a chapter just on this word. It can be interpreted piety or godliness, whichever you like. And you've seen it already several times, as in, remember, Timothy have nothing to do with silly myths, But train yourself for what? For godliness, piety, or even more profound. Remember Paul's description in chapter 3 of the mystery of godliness, the gospel, the gospel itself, the mystery of piety, the mystery of godliness. Paul is intensely concerned, very concerned in these pastoral epistles that Timothy, Titus, and the churches develop real genuine piety and not just the outward shell of religious self-talk. The concern of Paul's can be found on every page, and it echoes back into the fifth commandment. The Greek Old Testament, using this exact same word, says, honor your mother and your father. Or to quote, Pastor James in Jerusalem, James 1 verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Of course, this was Jesus' great concern too. He wanted people to move from discussing religion to practicing religion, living it out, He often said that it was only those who put his word into action, into practice, that were his true disciples, not the hearers only. True piety, then, is the living out of our faith. And this passage reminds us that true piety begins at home. Children are taught at home how to live out their faith, elderly parents in need provide a crucial opportunity for real piety. For those in the church who refuse this opportunity, the word of God is nothing less than devastating in its rebuke. Jesus, in his day, you'll remember, condemned the Jews for their tradition. They called it Corban, whereby an adult child could refuse the care of elderly parents by donating a sum to the temple. Jesus said that by doing this, the Jews of his day were, quote, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Paul's words may be even more condemning than those of Jesus. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And notice that Paul treats this not as a gift, a gift we give to our elderly parents, but rather as a duty. Verse 4 says that we're to make some return, some repayment, to our parents, for this is pleasing to God. In short, this is owed. It is a duty of adult children to do this. And this command did not just apply to women. Verse 8 is probably focused on men. It's all masculine. If any man does not provide for his own home, However, remember, the Ephesian church had some truly wealthy and influential women. Remember, Paul urged them not to wear all their jewelry and gold to church because some of them had so much money. So very wisely, Paul adds verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the first thing that's not in Paul's portrait of an enrolled widow is a family. An enrolled widow is a woman left all alone. In a similar vein, notice that the enrolled widow is also a woman of a certain age. Verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. In other words, it's not just that she doesn't have a family, it's that she's unlikely to be married again and is beyond having children. Verse 11 is even more direct. Literally, it reads in Greek, younger widows don't do it for when the passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to be married Just as the family is to step in and care for the widow, so the younger widow should remain open to marriage and even to having a family. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. Now that might be a little disturbing to some of us. Is Paul here, someone might ask, is Paul here essentially forcing or pressuring uh, young widows to remarry? I think that's a total misreading of this text, and I, I can honestly say so do most scholars. Any widow, any widow, regardless of age, who was without family could count on the support of the church. It's unthinkable that Paul and Timothy would have refused to feed a young starving widow or a young single mother and said, Sorry, you're just too young, you don't meet the qualifications. That's simply ridiculous. The question here is not about giving them help. Remember, it's about enrolling them, enrolling these widows and then honoring them. It's about a permanent arrangement where the church says, we will be your family until death and provide for you for the rest of your life. And in turn, you will continue to serve the church to the best of your ability. Paul is saying, don't put young widows on that kind of track. Young widows without family will be cared for, but not placed on the role of true widows. As you read the church fathers, even the very earliest church fathers, it's fascinating to see this discussion unfold in the early church. The ancient church fathers began, in the, I think around the 300s, to start to worry They were worried because the church was lowering the age requirement for women to be enrolled like this. Sadly, over time, the age requirement of 60 was completely lost, and the church took women as nuns, women of all ages, putting many of them in an impossible situation. One of our members told me just this week of a priest and a nun he grew up with who ran away together. And of course, that was also Martin Luther's own experience. All of this because the church ignored scripture. That's what's not then in the portrait. She is a woman without family. She is not a young woman. She is not a woman who could still remarry. And so she's open to be honored and enrolled. And that leads us to the second observation this morning. We've seen what's not in the portrait. What's in the portrait that Paul gives us here? What did Paul expect Timothy to enroll? What kind of people in this order of widows? To answer that question, we have to talk about the title, Deaconess. Deaconess. If you have a good remember or good memory, uh, you might remember my sermon on 1 Timothy 3.11. In context, Paul is giving the qualifications for deacons and elders, and suddenly, without a break, your member, he writes, their women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And the Greek word there can be women, their women, as in the women who work with the deacons, or it can be their wives. And there is literally no way to know. The most literal translation is to say women and not wives. Men like John Calvin and really all of the early church fathers and many faithful pastors today believe that this is a reference to an order of widows, women who served under the deacons. The evidence for this is incredibly strong. For example, we have an ancient record of two women who were tortured and martyred and the Romans who were doing the torturing and murdering, they note in their records that these two women were known as deaconesses or servants at their local church. At the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, these women are clearly mentioned as a real order in the church. And the record clearly notes that they were not ordained, but were seen as part of the laity. They were not officers, but they were a real order of women. It's not hard to imagine how important these women would would have been for the early church. Our Middle Eastern members especially can help us appreciate just how inappropriate it is to have a sick woman cared for by a man or a male deacon. In the Middle East especially, this would have caused an enormous scandal. A godly woman would not want to be handled in that way, An order of faithful widows would have been critical to the success of the deacons, especially in a time when caring for the dying, sick, and pregnant was often left to family members alone. In short, I tend to think that Calvin, the church fathers, are correct to read these verses, especially 9 through 16, as a real order in the church And I think if you adopt that view and you understand that, then these verses, this portrait really comes into focus and becomes clear. As these verses say, we are not talking about just any order of widows. We're not just talking about people in the church who've lost their spouse. Paul lays out here an exceptional class of women. In fact, you will notice the qualifications for this enrollment sound a little like the qualifications for the office of deacon and elder, which would explain why Paul suddenly speaks of the women who are with the deacons and gives qualifications for them in chapter 3. So with that in mind, look again at verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, remember what the elders and deacons had to be, one woman, men, so she must be a one man woman, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Or look at verse five, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day." In short, this is a picture, isn't it, of Anna in the temple when she sees Christ. These were older, proven, mature widows who gave themselves to ministry and prayer and received the lifetime support of the church. They were entitled to it, And so Paul can say to Timothy, honor these women, honor them. The various, the very earliest Christian records going back to just the years prior to the, or just post uh, the apostles speak of these women as virgins a second time or as virgins called widows. And they were never seen as ruling officers, but they were seen as an order of devoted servants to be honored, cherished, and supported. I hope now that I've helped in some way make this portrait clear. All the widows and widowers of the church should be comforted and prayed for. They all deserve our love and our help. But what Paul has in mind here is honor and enrollment. He's speaking of a select group of female widows who were renowned for personal holiness and sacrificial service. These women, without family, should receive lifetime care from a grateful and loving church family. And that is the focus of these verses. That lovely portrait of the Greek widow that I began the sermon with this morning, you know, as I think back to it, it seemed a little out of place to me at first. After all, this was a resort area for Greeks and tourists, But over the days we were there, I came to appreciate it more and more. I think these verses are a lot like that portrait. At first glance, they may feel out of place to us today, a relic of a bygone era. After all, this order of widows uh, seems to kind of die out in the fourth century. And today, we simply don't have any destitute women without family looking to fill this role in our church. But isn't it amazing how God used this crisis to shape the church? It was this crisis that God used to formalize the role of deacon in the church. And this passage offers, I think, so much timeless practical wisdom that applies to us today. Here are just a few of the lessons I want to share with you. First, this portrait reminds us that the church is never to intrude on the role of the family. Now, let me be clear. The elders of the church do have a God-given right to speak into the life of a family that is straying from the truth. And the members of the family, husband, wife, and children, also have the right to appeal to the elders for protection, for help, or for counsel. But in general, the church is not to destroy or to undermine the family. God wants families to learn piety, and that includes the care of elderly parents. Many of us have done this and can witness to the intense lessons that have been learned. Moreover, as Paul makes clear here, elderly parents deserve this care. It is a return on the labor and sacrifice they have shown for their children. The church is not to upset, to overturn the basic patterns of life that God has established at creation. Second, this portrait helps us to limit the kind of help the church is allowed to give. To limit the kind of help the church is allowed to give. The church must not give help that hurts. Paul is worried that enrolling the wrong people will enable them, empower them to be lazy, to be gossips, to be busybodies, and to be immoral. You can see that in verse 6 and other places in the text. The deacons especially, but all of us, have a duty to ask ourselves this question. Will this help, that I want to give, actually hurt that person? If so, are there other ways I can serve that person instead? Paul is also concerned that enrolling young women puts them in a terrible position. It may feel, Paul says, it may feel like you're helping, but you're actually hurting. So much sorrow could be avoided if Christian churches had not created orders of nuns and aggressively recruited young women into them. In the Middle Ages, thousands of women were placed in these orders. They made vows and then they broke those vows because they were never intended to be celibate. This is a great example of help that actually hurts The young woman's family might have thought they were providing a safe future for their daughter, but they were actually setting her up for failure. Lastly, this portrait provides a wonderful window into the love and concern we should have for each other. In Acts, we are told that the church pooled some of their wealth so that there were no starving or destitute people in the church. The church, when functioning properly, can have a massive impact on poverty and can even eradicate it entirely. In fact, as much as we may not at times, maybe most of the time, like the way our current welfare system works, the truth is that it has its roots in the Bible. Because of our Judeo-Christian heritage, we have always created systems of relief for those in need. This is why the best known aid or agency in the world is titled the Red Cross. This is why nuns inspired the field of nursing and why many hospitals were attached to churches. China's first mental hospital, first woman's hospital, and its entire method of nursing was inspired by Christian missionaries, many of them Presbyterian. We could go on and on here. Here's the point. As we live for Christ together, we are going to and we must create an alternative community, and that's visible in this text. I'm not talking about a cult, and I'm not talking about shutting the world out. I'm talking about something that happens naturally as we seek to love and care for one another. One of the bright sides of what is happening culturally right now is that as never before in this country, this reality stands out. We are different. We see elderly people very differently. We see family differently. We have become the quiet resistance we have become alternative. And so we found schools to preserve classical and Christian learning, to give an alternative. We do marriage and romance and dating very differently. We even do art and music differently. In fact, we have a group here at the church that meets to talk about how to do art and music as Christians. This then, these verses, can you see this? They are a portrait. And they are a window, a window into a time that yes, it's past, but it's also present. A time long ago, and yet somehow a moment alive for us today. It's a picture of a church that was culturally isolated, hated, but was finding ways to care for its own. But what can account for all the good done by this community of believers? And the massive impact it has had on the world. To understand all the goodness of these verses, you must come with me to the side of a busy road. A naked, tortured, and bloodied man, nailed to a cross, pushes himself up and gets another breath of air. The man is 30 years old, and as was common for a man of that age, his mother was a widow. Jesus gets his breath, and he says, and woman to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple John, whom he loved, behold your mother. And the text says, from that hour, the disciple took her, Jesus' widow, to his own home. All of our love for each other, all of our concern for the weak, the sick, the disabled, and the wounded, It all comes from that cross. It all comes from a man who used some of his dying words to ensure the provision of his widow mother. And he did this while carrying the weight of our sins on his shoulders. Such a man will always be the comfort of every widow and widower in this room. Indeed, he is the king of love, and of mercy, So fall down before him now in your hearts and find in him all the strength you need to love and serve. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Savior, we remember today that act of yours from the cross, where you spoke in love to your widowed mother, and provided for her care. And through this window, and through the window of your word in First Timothy, we see a new way of living, to live in love and honor with one another. Oh Father, we pray to you that you would make this happen in our midst, that you would create out of us a community of love and service to one another. And Father, we ask that you would do this so that your son, who was crucified and is now risen, would be seen in this place. And so we ask it in his name. Amen.